Taliban may not have changed that much since mm. the late 90s, it might turn out. But Afghanistan has changed hugely. Yeah. The Afghan people have changed enormously. Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is award-winning journalist Clarissa Ward. She's CNN's chief international correspondent, author of the book On All Fronts, and host of the upcoming CNN podcast, Tug of War. For Americans watching the chaos that followed the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan after nearly 20 years of war, Clarissa Ward was the most visible and intrepid guide. Over the course of her three-week reporting trip to Afghanistan in August for CNN, Clarissa Ward covered the shockingly swift collapse of the Afghan military, the complete takeover of Kabul and the rest of the country by the Taliban, and the violence and desperation at airports as Americans and allies sought to flee. I called up Clarissa on Tuesday to talk about the withdrawal, what life is like in Afghanistan right now, and how she deals with the Taliban as a reporter. Uh, Clarissa, thank you for joining us, and thank you for your incredibly brave and essential coverage of Afghanistan over the last month. Thank you. It's uh, my pleasure to be with you, and I appreciate you saying that. Now, could you tell us where you are reporting from now? Right now, I'm in France, and I'm not really reporting. I'm, a, I'm quarantined because Afghanistan's on the red list in the UK. So I'm just enjoying some much-needed time with my kids. <laughs> yeah. Basically. Now, you arrived in Afghanistan on August 2nd. Uh, yeah. for what was supposed to be a two-week reporting trip, from what I understand. Yeah. And you ended up staying three weeks and yeah. watching the shockingly swift fall of the country to the Taliban. Um, do you want to go back to Afghanistan or is that not possible at this point? Oh, no, I very much want to go back. Mm -hmm. I very much want to go back. Um, and, you know, I, I listen, I think you always have to be really smart about these things. And even when you're desperate to go back, you need to listen to people around you as well. And um, I trust my Afghan, my Afghan colleague, Najibullah Qureshi a lot. And after we had interviewed this ISIS-K commander, he was like, you know what, maybe just wait a beat before coming back because a lot of people are talking about it and it's all over social media and your profile is really high right now. And so um, as much as it pained me not to get on a plane and be able to go right back there or drive right back there or however I could get right back there, um, I do think, you know, one of the, most essential parts of doing this job is knowing that you need to be humble enough to listen to those people around you, especially people who are from the place that you're going to and taking their advice and particularly when it comes to issues like safety. So what do you think it was specifically that has caused this threat that means that you don't think it's a good idea to go back? Is it just the, is it the interview with the ISIS-K leader? Oh, I mean, I don't, I don't want to overstate it. It's, mm -hmm. I wouldn't say there's a specific threat and it's not that I wouldn't go back. It just was you know, it just didn't seem to make sense to go back a few days after I had interviewed a senior commander with ISIS mm. with tensions as high as they were already. And my interview getting a lot of attention uh, online, particularly in Afghanistan, it was more about like, let's just wait a beat. And um, and when things calm down, we can reassess. Is there a threat in Afghanistan right now to journalists broadly? I mean, I'm not aware. Look, I think there's a threat to all sorts of people in Afghanistan. Um, I think the primary people facing those threats are, are the Afghan people. Mm. I'm sure, uh, you know, ISIS-K would be happy to launch some kind of an attack on Western targets and potentially Western journalists could be among that. And I'm, but I think that primarily when I think of who faces the greatest threats right now in Afghanistan, it's 
women, it's journalists, it's people who worked with the US military or people who worked with the Afghan forces. There are a lot of people who who feel that they're under threat at the moment. I don't think, um, certainly, I don't think Western journalists specifically are, are a target. Now, you managed to leave Afghanistan on one of the flights uh, that went to Doha, uh, and this was amid all the chaos and violence at the airports. What was it like getting out of there? It was a really long process. Obviously, it took us, um, wow, what did it take us in the end? We got there at about seven in the morning, and we got out at about three in the morning. So it took us about 20 hours. Wow. I mean, I think for me, what was sort of overwhelming was just to see, you know, what a desperate and chaotic situation it was for Afghans who had been waiting there, some of them for two days, who had small children and babies with them. Um, You know, there wasn't a lot of things like shelter from the heat, from the sun. Uh, Marines were handing out little strips of cardboard to people to fan themselves with and, um, so, and it just was, you know, there weren't a lot of bathrooms and it was, I think, very difficult for people. And then they're sitting by the flight path for, you know, more than a day, roaring jet engines, Mm -hmm. babies with them, just lying on gravel basically and, and waiting and waiting. So it was obviously, I think I saw it at its sort of worst moment because I was there during this sort of 10 hour delay when all the planes had stopped, US planes, I should be more specific. Um, so it was, uh, you know, we were, we were lucky. We were lucky mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, and in the end, obviously, uh, 120,000 other people were too, but it was really instructive just to see um, how difficult it was for people to get out, both to get in through those gates, then the long wait after that, and then also just the sort of sense of not knowing what's next for you in life. Where are you going? Who will meet you when you land? Where will you stay? Where will you work? Will you see your family again? I mean, there's so many, uh, so many challenges for people leaving their homes and fleeing mm. their countries. Now, the Taliban has been on something of a publicity blitz since their takeover. Um, They vowed to respect women's rights and ensure that Afghanistan doesn't become a haven for terrorists, among other pledges that they've become more moderate since the 1990s. Uh, To to what extent do you think we should believe that? I mean, I I think you sort of have to hold them at their word and and then see what they say. I think you would be a little bit naive to sort of trust everything they say. Of course, they have a vested interest in presenting themselves as a more mature and diplomatic political force. And Mm. fundamentally, it doesn't seem like their actual ideology has changed that much. That doesn't mean that they haven't matured or become more pragmatic, but fundamentally, the ideology hasn't really changed. So, I mean, you know, I don't know, I'm not a politician or a policymaker, but I, I guess, you know, I guess you sort of hope for the best and expect the worst and then feel like maybe you've got all your bases covered. (laughs) (laughs) Now, when uh, the Taliban first took over Kabul, uh, I think one of the more striking images for American media consumers here was seeing you reporting in a full length black abaya and a headscarf. Mm. Did you feel like you would be in danger if you were not dressed in that way when you were interviewing Taliban fighters? I mean, I just felt that this was how I had always dressed when I was with the Taliban. Mm -hmm. And I had been on two trips with the Taliban previously. 
And even then, you know, it's not like I was seen by the Taliban as dressing conservatively at all. I mean, you heard them saying to me on a number of occasions to cover my face or they didn't want to walk down the street with me or whatever, uh, whatever it might have been. So I guess my calculation was that if I'm going to get up in this guy's face and push him on women's rights or why he's carrying a truncheon or a whip, then I need to be able to in order to even have that conversation, I need to be dressed in a certain way, I felt like, because if I had dressed differently, I was concerned that A, potentially, you know, it wouldn't go down well, might have, you know, broader ramifications for my security. But also, I was just more concerned that they wouldn't talk to me, that Mm. they would just be like, go away. Like, I don't even want to deal with you. I think now that we see more clearly the situation on the ground, and we see how the Taliban are presenting themselves, Um, If I was going to do an official interview at the presidential palace, I would not wear an abaya and, Mm -hmm. you know, an an all covering hijab. But you have to remember, these were like the first couple of days after the Taliban had taken over the country. And um, it was all very new and pretty intimidating. And I knew that if I was going to be out there in the streets and in their face, I wanted to feel like I was secure and wearing the clothes, frankly, that I was accustomed to wearing with the Taliban in the past. And what was it like interviewing the Taliban fighters as a woman? Do you think, did you run into any problems being a woman and trying to have those conversations with them? I mean, for the most part, not really. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, they were in a pretty good mood and they were relaxed. They were very sort of jubilant. Celebratory. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, but it was a very different scene outside the airport. We had a really nasty run-in with a couple of them. Um, my producer, Brent Swales, very nearly got pistol whipped mm-hmm. uh, and they were super aggressive. And the guy was like, you know, shouting at me to cover my face and he didn't want to talk to me. So, you know, it really depends who you get, which I... I guess is is the same with a lot of these types of militia. Um, what you hear from the top is not necessarily what you're going to see from the rank and file on the ground. And with the rank and file on the ground, it's just going to depend on who you get and what the mood is. And you know, obviously, outside the airport, it was already very stressful and intense. And uh, those guys were in a really bad mood, and they just did not want to talk to us. <laughs> and is that? I mean, the you said that there's a difference between sort of what the leadership is saying, what the rank and file do. Is that one of the reasons why they instructed women to stay home for a certain period of time until those sort of, I think they said, until the rank and file understands how to deal yeah. with them. Yeah. I mean, that's what Zabiola Mujahid, who's the group spokesperson said when he hmm. issued this sort of, I don't know whether you'd call it an edict or a warning, but it was sort of an ominous message that it would be better for women to stay at home, as you said, until um, Taliban fighters work out how to deal with women. But to many people, that was kind of slightly sinister because it's like, well, are the Taliban fighters ever going to work out how to deal with women? Because they don't have much of a track record for that. So surely you should be setting the tone and saying to your fighters, you need to be aware that like we live in a different world now and there are women on the street and there are women in the universities and there are women working in offices. So deal with it. Um, but that's not what we heard them say. And so I, I think for a lot of women, that was like a little bit of a, oof, you know. Did you see a difference between uh, dealing as a journalist with Taliban and dealing with ISIS-K? Oh, I mean, there's there's no comparison. Yeah. Um, there's, I, I, I mean, well, first of all, they're sworn enemies. So all they mm-hmm. do is talk about how much they hate each other. So that's <laughs> number one. 
Um, and secondly, ISIS-K's whole raison d'etre is that they think the Taliban have become softies and lightweights and mm. that they don't cut off enough hands and they don't stone enough people to death. And um, so by their very nature, they are much more, um, much more extreme which doesn't mm-hmm. mean that the Taliban are not extreme. It just means, you know, it's all a question of, of, of measure, I guess. Um, I would also just say that the Taliban have shown like much more interest in governance. The Taliban are not against the concept of the nation state in principle. They are saying they're going to have a more inclusive government. You know, they, the, the way they talk is in a totally different manner than a group like ISIS-K, which is, you know, at, at its core, a sort of, you know, uh, jihadist, terrorist, militant group. You and your crew have taken a lot of precautions, I imagine, when reporting uh, in Afghanistan. Were there ever moments where, despite those precautions, you felt like you and your crew were were in danger? I think this situation outside the airport was dangerous mm-hmm. because... I forget what the expression is, but you know, one man who's like deranged with rage can be more dangerous than a bullet sometimes. Mm-hmm. And we, we, these Taliban fighters, as I said in the story, like I think a, at least one of them was high on something. I'm not yeah. sure exactly what that would have been. Um, but beyond that, they were just like, you couldn't reason with them. It was like mm-hmm. the lights were on, but there was no one home. They were just in a rage. And so you're like literally shouting at them, like, we're journalists, we're journalists, we have permission from Mujahid, we have the, you know, and eventually like something trickled through and they sort of left it. But like, there was that moment where you see them, you know, ready to strike Brent. And uh, yeah, it was, it was bad. It was now, how do you get that permission uh, from the Taliban leadership to be sort of Western journalists reporting on this? So, I mean, mostly you go through the information spokesperson, um, Zabiullah Mujahid, and he deals with all sorts of Western journalists and has for a while. I mean, there's there's a few of us, not many of us, but there's a few of us who've been doing stuff with the Taliban, um, covering sort of their territory for a couple of years now. So um, he is he is definitely the person who can provide or extend that protection to you Mm -hmm. but then again you know you just always have to be aware that even if you have all the permissions in the world if you get a guy who's you know out of his mind on whatever and shooting up in the air and surrounded by crowds and trying to push them back like you you can't be sure that a piece of paper no matter who it's from is is going to get you out of that situation right now, there was a, a somewhat ridiculous controversy um, that was sparked by some of your reporting in Kabul when you mm. described fighters as friendly and you said their friendliness was bizarre because they were at the same time they were chanting death to America. Yeah. And that very simple piece of reporting about what was going on on the mm. ground uh, prompted an, um, some outrage from Senator Ted Cruz mm. who accused you of cheerleading for the enemy. Um, mm. What was that like seeing that sort of attack from a, a U.S. senator while you were in you know, Taliban controlled Afghanistan doing reporting. I mean, honestly, it barely registered. Really? People were like, Ted Cruz said something stupid about <laughs> you. Don't, don't engage with it. And I was like, okay, I was so busy. You know, I was, I was doing my job. I was yeah. totally consumed with reporting out this story. And, you know, we were working 19 hour days and trying to crashing these packages and doing live shots all night and getting up. So I just really didn't have time to, 
obsess over what was being said about me also because I understood immediately that it had nothing really to do with me or my reporting and that it was, you know, anytime I or my work are being used in some way or appropriated for someone else's political agenda, I really, um, I really just tend to try to tune it out. <laughs> that's a, a good, yeah, that's a good, good disposition to have about it. Now, one assessment I think that has been made in the aftermath of the American withdrawal is this idea that some Afghan people are not as opposed to the Taliban as the West assumes. Hmm. And are there a lot of, are there a lot of Afghans who, who have welcomed the Taliban takeover? Yeah. So this is something I talked about in, in, in both stories. Well, primarily the first story I did with the Taliban in January, twenty. 19. Um, the Taliban has a number of, there's a number of things that are appealing to ordinary Afghans about the Taliban. Number one, the Afghan government was very corrupt. Mm. The Taliban has a reputation for implementing swift justice. And it may be really harsh justice, and there's floggings and beatings and all sorts of things that we might find a little bit shocking, but it gets done and it gets done quickly. And it's not a question of paying a bribe. Mm -hmm. So it's um, it's hard to like overemphasize just how much that was welcomed by a lot of people. It also, when I spent time in Kandahar, for example, you talk about like the Kandahar police. Um, you know, there are plenty of groups affiliated with the government or under the control of the government that had a terrible reputation with ordinary civilians not just for being corrupt, but for being brutal, for being violent, for, you know, fishing young men out of their beds in the night and disappearing them to awful prisons uh, where they would be beaten and worse. And so there were plenty of people in Afghanistan who didn't, had no love um, for the government. And there was also, I think, among a lot of people, just a sense of exhaustion of war. And it's the same reason the Taliban really came to power in the late 90s was that they were the force that was brutal enough, but effective enough that they could stop the fighting, basically. Mm -hmm. And so you got to the stage where people who didn't necessarily have any real love for the Taliban ideology, ideologically were just like, you know what, if you can bring about some level of calm or some level of stability, we'll take it. We're so exhausted. And I think the country was in a similar state now. People, a lot of people are so exhausted just by endless decades of war that I think they're ready for a break. I mean, obviously that is not, you know, it's impossible to quantify, like we don't have the kind of polling or that kind of numbers, mm -hmm. but it's a, it's a significant portion of the population. And particularly when you go outside of the cities, the cities are different. People are educated, aspirational. That's where the middle class is. Mm. And they tend to be much more staunchly opposed to the Taliban, but in rural areas, it's a different story. Is there a sense also that the Taliban is more moderate somehow than other groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS that could also take over a country like Afghanistan? I mean, the thing is, I don't think anyone thinks al-Qaeda or ISIS could actually take over a country. Mm. Also, they don't really have any interest. As I said before, they're like, fundamentally, they're insurgencies. They're they're more interested in breaking and destroying than they are. There's like, no governing they, willingness. Yeah, there's, I, I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, let's put it this way. Al-Qaeda never declared a caliphate before, right? Mm. Now that ISIS in Syria and Iraq was declared a caliphate, maybe um, ISIS-K would have aspirations to do the same. But if you thought that the Taliban had limited experience in governing, I mean, ISIS-K, it's like, 
I mean, zero experience sure. for him. <laughs> so I don't think they have a huge amount of support in the country um, beyond, you know, pockets of territory I can think of where they do have some. But um, I think the Taliban is seen as having a mixture of the ability to like implement their will on the battlefield and the sort of structure and discipline of that, that Afghan forces really lacked, but also having, you know, enough experience, depending on who you talk to, governing that, uh, you know, potentially it won't be a disaster. Although I think everybody's, you know, sort of not holding their breath, let's say. Sure. And it also feels like uh, the Taliban are going to have a lot more trouble maintaining control now in the age of social media yeah. than in the 1990s. You know, the protests no, we saw this No, it's a really week. important point. It's a yeah. really yeah. important point. And it's like, I, I said this in a few of my live shots. I'm like, you know, the Taliban may not have changed that much since mm. the late 90s, it might turn out. But Afghanistan has changed yeah. hugely. Yeah. The Afghan people have changed enormously. Exactly as you said, social media um, and you're just seeing these women coming out today and marching in the street. I mean, and these protests are, were organized in large part on social yeah, media. Yeah. I mean, the so I, you know, it's a totally different um society that they're mm -hmm. that they're inheriting. And 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 you know, and maybe they they have changed as well and they'll adapt and stranger things have happened. <laughs> <laughs> now I, I was listening to an interview you did recently where you were speaking about your risk calculations changing since becoming a mother. Mm. Uh, you said that you are, and I'm quoting here, you said you were very risk averse and very cautious. Now you have reported from wars in, in Aleppo and Syria, Baghdad and Iraq. Uh, you had an incredibly memorable report from Russia where you showed up at the door of a Russian FSB agent suspected of poisoning Alexei Navalny and you questioned him. All of that reporting is very incredible, but it doesn't sound very risk averse. Uh, yeah. What exactly did you mean by that? Comment. I meant that, that you know there there I mean look it's all relative right mm -hmm. and things always look much worse from the outside looking looking on um, than they do from within I'm willing to go to war zones or wherever I need to go to to sort of tell the people's story or the story of the people who are living at the center of that um, what I meant is that I'm I'm not very comfortable in situations where I'm on an active front line and they're shooting mm. around me and there's you know, or there's an active battle going on or regular airstrikes. I hate airstrikes. They make me feel like just absolutely petrified and or shelling all of that stuff. Like I've gone through it, um, you know, more than my fair share. What is it I, like it, going through that? I mean, you know, it's like, well, especially something like shelling is like kind of a mind game, right? Mm. Because it's, you just can't escape this like, crippling fear that like the next thud could be on the house that you're in mm. and so what it does is it sort of like psychologically devastates you as much as anything else you feel like you can't like go even just peep outside the house because another shell could land right there and you don't sleep and you you, you know i mean it, for me i just found like my nerves were just shot um by the whole experience um, so I would definitely try to avoid that now, um, being in an active war situation like that. But again, you have to always make decisions on the ground based on the information at your disposal. But I'm very keenly aware that my primary responsibility is as a mother to my sons.
Is it because you're obviously going off and covering things like this, uh, the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan and then returning home uh, to spend time with your children. Is that a hard transition to do going back and forth between war zones and family life? Uh, yeah, of course it is. I mean, it's harder. It's harder leaving them mm -hmm. than coming back to them. Coming back to them is always pretty awesome. Even yeah, I can if imagine. I'm totally zonked. Um, <laughs> but it's always so hard to leave. You know, there's a yeah. lot of guilt that comes with that and, and a lot of anxiety about being away from them. But then there's also a feeling sometimes, especially if you haven't gone away for, you know, a couple of months or something, there is also a sense of excitement about being start to get the itch. back in your flow and, yeah. and, and back in your work and your zone and having the freedom to do that as well. Because obviously when you have little ones, it's, it's, it's a game changer in terms <laughs> of how your, how your life works. Yeah. I feel like Americans have short attention spans when it comes to, to foreign conflict. And, you know, something like what's happening in Afghanistan now is something that we are going to pay attention to for a couple of weeks and then start to tune mm. out. Mm. Uh, is that something that frustrates you as a foreign correspondent covering these stories? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything you could do to keep this stuff in the news? I mean, I guess you I mean, appeal you know, to producers at the network. and Yeah. Stuff and so, I mean, here's what, here's what I learned along the, the way. You can't change the news cycle. So don't, you know, that's like trying to surf a tsunami and yeah. like make it go in a different direction. Like you can't do it. Mm. The news cycle is its own beast and you can't control it. So you know when to ride the wave. Great. And then in the moments where maybe like that's not your wave, what you can do and what I try to do is slightly longer form storytelling with great characters that really gives a rich sense of a people or a place or a culture or a conflict or whatever it might be. And I'm very lucky that I work at CNN and Jeff Zucker is willing to put that on air. And you see a lot of my CNN colleagues doing, you know, really incredible work on, uh, you know, Nemal Bagher doing stuff in Sudan and Ethiopia and the Tigray crisis. And, um, uh, I mean, you know, so many of my colleagues doing amazing work like that. So uh, there are ways to do it, but yes, it's it's frustrating when you see the attention start to shift and you're like, wait, this story is only just starting. Mm. And I think for me, it's sometimes frustrating because I see elements of like history repeating itself. And it's like, oh, is, this is like feeding into the attitude that like got us into trouble in the first place, yeah. that we're like not more engaged or we're not more we're not listening for a longer period of time. And um, so I hope Afghanistan will, will, will stay in the news for a while. I understand that it won't be at the same level, mm. but I hope that it will still be of interest to American viewers. Speaking of long form, you have a new podcast for CNN called Tug of War, which is debuting in October. W what can you tell us about that? So, this came about basically, I became obsessed. I read this statistic somewhere that there were more autocracies for the first time since 2001 than there were democracies. And That's that fun. to me like spoke to the rise of the autocracy mm. and, and also the sort of, you know, um, plateauing or shrinking of liberal democracies. And I also though within that, sphere of growing autocracies, you have growing like grassroots resistance movements. And I think, you know, and this is something I talk about in my book a lot as well. Um, I'm very intrigued about 
the sort of or sort of extraordinary courage of ordinary people mm. and like where that comes from and what motivates people to do that. And I think you're seeing that in a lot of these autocracies, whether it's in Myanmar, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in Russia, whether it's, um, you know, in a different context in Afghanistan, you're seeing this like incredible courage of ordinary people who are willing to do extraordinary things. And so that's that's where it started from. And, and I became just sort of fascinated, like, why does this happen? How do they do it? Who are yeah. they? I think it was it's truly fascinating, especially in Syria, you know, before the, the civil war became truly militarized on the part mm. of the resistance, when they had these sort of democratic councils that were sprouting up all, all yeah. over the country. Um, does will will the podcast interview people on that side? Or is it more of a sort of narrative storytelling? No, there will definitely be interviews. I'm, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a, the Syrian one, like the main character in the Syrian one is someone who kind of started out as a idealistic revolutionary and kind of went through the whole yep. arc. Um, so no, it's for me, it's really like some of it is narrative, like experiential, like just mm -hmm. being on the ground and, and sharing moments that will never make it onto TV, but are nonetheless, I think, kind of compelling. Yeah. But a lot of it is is it's about these people and these characters and the the amazing things they've been doing. Now, you detail your career extensively in your book on all fronts, um, which came out in paperback on Tuesday. Um, again, after being released last year. For our listeners that haven't read it yet, uh, I just want to know what made you want to become a reporter and specifically a foreign correspondent? So I decided that this was the work that I wanted to do after 9-11, or really on 9-11, to be mm -hmm. honest. Um, I think like many Americans, I was glued to my television set. I was a senior in college and I um was studying comparative literature i was very into like the arts and suddenly it just seemed to me that the only important thing in the world was what was happening in the world and how i felt very much that i had been disconnected from what was going on that i hadn't understood it that i hadn't been paying attention that there was a real breakdown in communication in, in the world um, between the US and, and, and the places where the 9-11 attacks were, were planned. And so I just wanted to be able to be involved in that somehow and involved in telling those stories and acting as kind of a translator. I mean, you know, I was 22 years old. So like there was a lot of idealism and some hubris involved <laughs> at that stage, but that's how it started. And it never really, it was a very, it was like a thunderbolt from the blue and it it never really left me that still fundamentally is what keeps me interested in doing this work the idea of like connecting people from very different orbits through shared human experience was it a difficult career uh, on on sort of in, within the realm of, of journalism careers was it a difficult one to get into because i know now it's considered you know news outlets are investing less and less in foreign correspondence and are shutting down their foreign bureaus did that make it hard um, I mean, I think what made it hard is that everyone and their mother kind of who was like on the desk wanted to do that job, yeah. right? And, in the aftermath or, of 9-11. Or be yeah. in the field. Mm -hmm. I think I, listen, I was, um, my timing was lucky in the sense that there was a huge war in Afghanistan. Now there was a huge war in Iraq. America obviously was at the center of both of those. And that meant that these places had bureaus that needed staffing. And it didn't take long before a lot of staff 
um, you know, journalists didn't want to go anymore because it was too dangerous and too difficult and public was starting to lose a bit of interest. And mm. so I think that I, um, I was, I benefited from that because there was a lot of interest in these wars. Um, and I think it's harder for young people trying to do the same thing now because America's not in, engaged in those kinds of wars anymore. Not anymore. Yeah. Now, my, my last question, looking forward into the next sort of year, what do you think the stories that you're going to be covering are? What are the biggest narratives, news angles, countries that you're going to be looking at? It's a good question. I mean, look, I think Afghanistan will definitely be among them mm. because um, it's a really important story and uh, and it's going to change a lot, I would imagine, over the next six months. Uh, I'm always passionate about Russia um, and I'm very interested in Russia's activities in Africa specifically. Um, and I think that China is like obviously uh, a huge story. It's a very challenging one to cover um, because it's so difficult, particularly with COVID, it's basically impossible to go there at the moment. Um, but it's um, it's obviously like, well, geopolitically, I would say it's the most important story there, there is right now with regards to U.S. foreign policy. So, but you know, then there are other stories that will always be in my heart, and I will still continue. I want to keep covering Myanmar. I really um, felt very passionately about that story. Syria is a constant focus. So, I have a lot of stories that I'm going to watch very closely, and I think it's always difficult to predict what the big stories are going to be. I mean, part of the reason I love doing this job so much is because I'm like humbled every single day by how spectacularly wrong I, I guessed or predicted, you know, because it's like things never end up being quite what you think they're going to be. And then yeah. you're like, oh, okay, whoops. I was, <laughs> I was totally wrong about that. But hey, whatever. I learned yeah. something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Clarissa Ward, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to the interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and check out coverage of my conversation with Clarissa Ward on Mediaite.com.